Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew. Today we have a unique and unusual privilege to study a passage that uh, is not found anywhere else in the Bible. A lot of times the gospel testimony, as you read the gospels in parallel, you find that at least in some part these stories are repeated in other gospels. This story is not repeated anywhere else in the Bible. I have to confess that uh, as I came to this, I had not studied this much anyway, and uh, when I first looked at it, I actually thought it meant something completely different. In fact, I listened to one of my favorite preachers who preached a sermon some 40 years ago on this passage, and he agreed with my initial analysis, but as I looked into what was being said and what was going on here, what Jesus said, I realized it had to do with something completely different than what on the surface it looks like. This has to do, today we have a privilege of studying, handling the non-essentials. As we relate to one another, as we relate to the world around us, as we live our Christian life, as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after Christ, how do we handle those things that are non-essential to the faith, practices, teachings, activity that is not central to the meaning and message of the gospel? How do we deal with these things, especially in the household of faith? We heard a couple of passages from Romans and Corinthians how Christians are supposed to deal and work with one another in terms of non-essentials among the church. How do we deal with this? Now, again, this subject is not instantly apparent as we read this text. We have to go back and get into the minds of the first audience, which were the Jews in the first century. We have to do a little bit of homework, so put your thinking caps on this morning, and hopefully we'll come away with some truths that you can live by. Let me read to you Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22, and I'll go down to verse 27. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, "'Does your teacher not pay the tax?' He said, "'Yes.' When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, "'What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others?' When he said, "'From others,' Jesus said to him, "'Then the sons are free.' However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, And take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the Word of God. Probably one of the most devastating philosophies over the past 30 years is what is called postmodernism. Fundamentally, what you need to know about postmodernism is that essentially it rejects all absolutes. Postmodernists say there is no absolute truth, there are no absolute morals, no absolute reality, no absolute teaching, or no absolute doctrine. And so you hear phrases like the following You live your truth. The idea is that everybody has a different truth that they can live by and legitimately live by, unhindered and unimpeded, unjudged by society, especially 
governmental authorities. One of the arguments that Christians over the last 20 or 30 years have made against the homosexual agenda is that in order to affirm homosexuality, you must reject biological absolutes. You must reject moral absolutes that have stood since the beginning of time. You must let each individual determine his or her sexuality with no boundaries. And the argument from many Christians has been, if you make the basis of our gender and relationships in society and legal system postmodernism, then who's to say a person cannot be a pedophile or engage in bestiality or be a polygamist? If there is no standard, if there is no absolute, then they can be anything they wish to be and should be free to do so. Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that since the quote-unquote victories of the homosexual agenda, there are now open public groups, political lobbies that promote and defend all of those horrifying things that I just mentioned? I've noticed a a steady flow in the L.A. Times, the New York Times, and other papers, a widespread promotion of polygamy. They call them thruples or forples, where multiple people get married and supposedly have this beautiful relationship of polygamy. Once a postmodern philosophy enters a legal system, there is no grounds for arguing that anything is right or wrong, legal or illegal. It is a legal and moral disaster, and it's unfolding really before our eyes. Transgender boys being allowed to compete in girls' sports and go into their locker rooms. And when conservative congressmen try to legislate against it, they're called bigots, right? Well, I'm not meaning to get all political today. I just want to point out this morning, uh, there is a prescient need for Christians to stand their ground in terms of absolute truth. We need Christians who will live by the biblical absolutes. We need preachers and churches who will stand for absolute truth, truth from Scripture who will not alter the eternal truths of God in order to draw a crowd. Sadly, many churches and many famous preachers have begun to embrace the woke culture and have grown soft on very clear absolutes in Scripture. Now, I know you guys are with me. You probably wouldn't be at this church if you weren't with me about these things. And so I say all this as sort of way of introduction. One of our temptations as people who agree with these things and who want to stand for absolute, absolute truth, one of the things that one of the temptations as we fight for absolutes is to create absolutes where there are none. It's to create law where there is no law. You understand what I'm saying? Oftentimes these things are, are personal convictions. We draw them from Scripture though they are not stated explicitly in Scripture. And then we, we try to impose our personal conviction on someone else, even though that explicit law or conviction is not stated as such in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Homeschooling. I can say this because we homeschool our kids. As we study the Bible, as we apply truths to our situation, as Becky and I prayed through how we raise our children, we have come to the personal conviction that we ought to homeschool each one of our kids. However, I resist the temptation to make law from this, to make absolutes that all Christians everywhere in every situation should do exactly as we have decided to do. I resist the temptation to speak to others others as though one of the commandments is thou shalt have 17 children by a white conversion van and homeschool them all. Not in the Bible. What is a big debate today? The COVID vaccine. Personal convictions. 
Some people take the vaccine with no thought. They believe that if the government says we should do something, why we should do it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think, you know what, the government has said this, and the Bible says in Romans 13 and Titus 3 that the government's here for our good. Why would we reject this institution that calls us to do something that is for our good? Your application of Scripture has led you to, to take the vaccine. Your temptation, however, is to then to create a law, an absolute, where there is no none. There is no verse that says, thou shalt take all vaccines that the government offers. And even if you take in a broad application of those verses up in Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, you know that there is no clear commandment about this thing. Your temptation will be to judge others, to look down upon others, to be even frustrated with others if they do not see it the way you see it. Some of you feel the exact opposite about the COVID shot. You feel that it's your biblical duty to stand patriotically against the politicians and the people who are trying to poke you with a shot and invade the private health of its citizens. Perhaps you look to verses about the righteousness of a nation or the persecution of saints, freedoms of citizens. Again, there is no verse that says, thou shalt not accept the jab by ye nation. But your temptation will be to look down upon those who don't go and get the shot as though they are less spiritual than you are. Have I stepped on your toes yet? I hope so. <laughs> well, we should all be happy to know that these temptations are common among God's people. These kind of struggles are common really from the beginning of the time, but especially uh, as we move to the new covenant, there were all kinds of controversies and temptations that lured people away into being judgmental and maybe mean-spirited toward one another. Sadly, sometimes these things have caused anger and strife and have even divided churches. Like I said, this happened especially when the old covenant was giving way to the new covenant. There were struggles of this very type. I had us listen to a couple passage early, passages earlier one, about one struggle that happened in the early church, and that was whether or not Christians could eat meat offered to idols. Now, I know that we all agree because we read Paul and we heard a verse just moments ago, and Paul said it's okay to eat meat offered to idols. But I would imagine if those verses weren't in Scripture and meat offered to idols was on discount at the local grocery store, I think there would probably be a group of Christians who said, oh yeah, we can eat it, and there would be a group of Christians who said, oh, we cannot eat meat offered to idols. I'm, I'm sure we would divide along those lines, just as they did in the New Testament. Some Christians, I'm sure, looking at the idea of grace and freedom held that you could eat this meat. Others very firmly held that any engagement or support of those who would be offering idols, offering sacrifices to idols. It would be tantamount to idol worship itself, and therefore they believed all Christians should abstain from eating meat offered to idols. Each party drew up sides. Each party probably judged one another. Well, today's passage presents us with another non-essential. Should Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, who came to end temple worship and who predicted the, the destruction of the temple 40 years later, should he be required to pay the temple tax? A tax that's not even required in the Old Testament? 
tax that's not even a part of Old Testament law. Jesus uses this question to teach his disciples about how to handle non-essentials. Now, before we jump in, let me give you a little preview of the the sections that are coming in front of us. If you notice, Jesus reminds his disciples where he's headed before he before launches this little bit of teaching. He reminds his disciples where he's headed. They're still around Galilee at this point. They're gathering around Galilee, but he's determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint toward Jerusalem to arrive there on Passover weekend and be sacrificed as the atoning lamb. That's verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, you could say Jesus reminded them. We heard this In the last section, back up at the end of chapter 16, where uh, Jesus was telling the disciples about this, and and they resisted, they refused this. In fact, fact, Peter refused it openly. Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says they were greatly distressed. So they're gathering in Galilee, but they're headed to Jerusalem. This is just just a reminder of what's happening, what the theme is in this section. And it sort of gives us What is Jesus doing? He's heading to Jerusalem, and on his way to Jerusalem, he is focusing his attention away from the crowds, though he still will speak to crowds, and though he still will do some miracles. He is focusing, generally speaking, he's focusing his attention away from the crowds and to training up the disciples. And that's what he's doing, again, beginning back up in in chapter 16 at the end. And this whole section, Jesus is giving lesson after lesson about how to live as someone who's denied themselves and taken their cross and followed after Christ. This is focused discipleship. He talks about humility. He talks about marriage and divorce. Divorce, we'll learn about that. He talks about working in God's vineyard. He teaches them an amazing lesson when a rich young ruler comes up and wants to be a disciple. He teaches them how to deal with someone who's in sin, specifically someone who sins against you. And here, in our passage today, he teaches them about handling the non-essentials, things that are not not essential to the message and meaning of the gospel. So when it comes to things like homeschooling or the COVID vaccination, things not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, non-essential to the gospel, things that are in the realm of personal conviction, personal application of the Bible, how should we operate? How should we think? First, number one, pursue knowledge. Pursue knowledge. And by this, I don't mean pursue knowledge of that particular subject. I mean pursue knowledge of the essentials. Pursue a deeper understanding of the truth that is revealed in Scripture. Pursue a deeper understanding of the doctrine that is given to us in Scripture. Fall deeper in love, not with the things on the periphery, not in Scripture. Fall in love with the things that are in Scripture. Dig in deeper in the truths. There's always a deeper place you can go into the truths of Scripture. Don't spend your time chasing a rabbit that has nothing to do with Scripture. Spend your time soaking your mind, believing in the truths that are given to us in the Bible. Jesus gave us a little lesson, and He gave a little lesson to Peter here, and I think it, it is a call us to encourage study, thought, understanding of Scripture, of history that have been revealed to us in the word. Let's read there, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And he came into the house. Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from the others? He said, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. 
And like I said, when I first read this, I thought this was a lesson on how to deal with government. And I thought this would be really important for us to talk about how to deal with the federal government, especially nowadays, it would be very uh, applicable to us. But as I studied this, again, I realized this has nothing to do with the government, the Roman government at that time. The, the two drachma tax was the temple tax. It had nothing to do with the Roman tax. It was not required by Rome. It was not a part of their taxation system at all. It had to do with something that was in Judaism. It was the Jewish temple tax. And this is something that they had come up with after the exile, and they had returned. They'd come back to Israel, and they were trying to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and they began to figure out ways that they could gather money. And this tax was one of the ideas. It fluctuated through the years. It fluctuated not, not, not just in terms of amount, but it fluctuated in terms of who would be taxed. And by the time that, that Jesus and Peter were doing this, every male would be taxed once a year to drachma. And what's interesting about this is that uh, originally when this, they came up with this tax, they were minting, the Roman government was minting a two drachma coin. But by the time Jesus and Peter were talking about this, that coin was no longer minted. And what a lot of guys would do is they would uh, just get a shekel, which is two two drachma coins, and they would give that shekel together. And we see this even happening in our passage today. So this temple tax collector, not a Roman tax collector, a temple tax collector came up to Peter and asked this question, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter says, yes, which to me, that kind of reminds me of when someone says, turn up the AC. Do you mean I'm hot and I need more AC? Or does it mean turn up the thermostat so the AC will turn off? And actually, I read all the commentators and no one can decide, can figure out what exactly is Peter saying Yes, he pays the tax. Of course, my teacher pays the tax. Or, yes, I affirm, he does not pay the tax. We don't know what Peter's saying here. Maybe we can ask him when we get to heaven. Well, we know in a moment Jesus will pay the tax, so Jesus does indeed follow through and pay this tax. Jesus then to ask Peter, what do you think about this? Do, do these guys, these tax collectors, these temple tax collectors and kings even, he, he moves to the realm of nations and kingdoms, kingdoms. Do they tax their own families? Peter says, no, of course they don't tax their own families. And Jesus says at the end of verse 26, then the sons are free. What's this mean? And Jesus is saying, in this issue, it is not required of Old Testament law more importantly, I am the fulfillment of the temple. I am essentially the son of the system. You know, our, our, our children, there's a little tabernacle that floats around our church, and it's the, the kids built it some years ago, and it's a little tabernacle, and the Sunday school teachers teach our children about all the different aspects of the tabernacle, all the different pieces of furniture, all the different things there, and all of it, even the tabernacle structure itself, points to Jesus Christ. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was all about me, ultimately. Ultimately, this pointed people to the ultimate atonement, me. I am the son. And, and essentially, he's saying, 
I am free because I'm the fulfillment, because I'm the son of this whole system, and I am the son of God. I'm the fulfillment, and I am thus free from this tax. Now, I know that sounds a little weird to us because we would never, in 21st century democracy, would never think it would be right for kings or leaders to not tax their family. Uh, but back then, kings and leaders never taxed their family. It's a, it's a known fact. They would never tax their family. So it's just logical, and Peter answers in the way that anybody would have answered back then. No, the son of the king is never taxed. And Jesus is saying, I'm the son of the king. I'm the son of the tabernacle system. I'm the son of God. I'm free from this tax. Tax. I'm the fulfillment. There's no reason for me to pay this tax. So we have this wonderful lesson here about an essential. In the middle of a discussion about something that's non-essential, this temple tax, Jesus points Peter to the knowledge and truth of something that is essential, that he is a fulfillment of the temple, of the temple system, of the temple sacrifices. He is the fulfillment of all of this. He points to the fact that this tax indeed is a non-essential, but the truth of who he is is absolutely central, and Peter ought to focus his attention on the truth of Jesus Christ. And what a great template for us. You know, if it has to do with homeschooling or vaccination, find out, instead of chasing all the rabbits and finding out all the arguments of this side or that side, focus on what Scripture says. Focus on the truth of the gospel. Focus on teaching your kids and discipling your kids. And yes, Christians, great Christians, good Christians, will come to different conclusions about what each one of them should do, whether it is vaccine or homeschooling or whatever else it is. Study how faithful people have applied the word to their hearts. Focus on those essentials. As you study the non-essentials, as you study the essentials, the non-essentials will grow smaller and smaller to you, while the essentials and the deep truths of the Bible will grow more and more beautiful, more magnificent. Christ himself will grow bigger and bigger and bigger so that you will not be caught up in fruitless arguments and debates about non-essentials among your brothers and sisters and even those outside of the church. You do this and you won't become one of those jerks who goes around pushing your personal convictions on everyone. Simultaneously, you'll know more and more the deep truths of God and fall more and more in love with Jesus Christ. At this point, pursue knowledge could just as well have been study the essentials First, when it comes to handling the non-essentials, pursue Bible knowledge. Pursue biblical essentials. Do this more deeply, more fervently. Number two, sacrifice for the sake of others. Sacrifice for the sake of others. Did you remember what we read moments ago, what the Apostle Paul said when, we, when he talked about meat being offered to idols? He said, it doesn't matter, this is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, it doesn't matter what we eat, theologically speaking, we are free to eat whatever we want to eat. In the verse 9, he says, I'm a Texan, so you can pry my steak from my cold, dead hand. Does he say that? Not at all. He says, if it offends my brother, I won't eat meat. I'll make that sacrifice. That's a small sacrifice. That's a little thing to me. Just for the sake of my brother, I won't eat meat. If it offends them, if it hurts them, I won't eat meat. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, 
take care that this right, this right to eat meat offered to idols, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, and if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, your sin, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's quite a sacrifice. I'm not sure if I could live up to that sacrifice. I won't eat meat? Paul says it's a minor sacrifice. I'm free to eat meat, but it causes my brother to stumble. It either causes people to sin by drawing people back to the worship of idols, that, that kind of is there, or what's more likely, just making them troubled in their heart by seeing Paul eating meat offered to idols. Paul doing something that they felt was morally, ethically wrong. Paul says, that's a sin if I do that, and I don't mind making this small sacrifice so that my brothers who feel differently than me about this non-essential will not stumble. Now, I want to say something that is radical, earth-shattering. You need to hold on to your seats. Four words. You don't have to write them down. You'll probably remember them. Here they are. Think before you post. You're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever else that's out there. What is it now? TikTok? Think, is this post me making much of a non-essential? Is this me highlighting my personal convictions and being angry with those who don't feel like I do? Or is this something that shows grace and kindness and warmth and highlights perhaps even an essential of Christian truth? Is this honorable to Christ and the gospel, or should I make a little bit of a sacrifice and not put every last feeling that I feel on Facebook? Those of you who grew up with siblings, what did you hear your mom say a million times? If you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. Just avoid this. There are Christians, and based upon their social media, they live their lives not swimming in the deep, essential truths of God and the gospel. They live their lives shouting all their opinions at everybody as though they need to live just like them. Look to Jesus. Jesus is talking about something that is not law, that He has come to fulfill. But what does He do? Verse 27, just told Peter this deep truth about who He is. However, verse 27, is not to give an offense to them, Go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. I'm not going to fight with them. That's a silly thing. I'm not going to make a big stink about this. There are things, essential things, that Christ would get very angry about. We'll see this later on when He cleanses the temple. But this time, I'm not going to fight with them. This is a non-essential. It is meaningless. Let's not worry about this. Let's not get entangled and bickering with the temple tax collectors. I'm not going to fight with them. Now, is this you? Does this describe you, this attitude Jesus has here? Does this describe your heart? Are you like Jesus in this respect? 
Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor John, this is going to be a really tall order. Very politically active, very opinionated. One day, I hope to be the mayor of Facebook. (laughs) This is really hard for me to swallow. I don't know if I can do it. Well, Jesus gives us a little illustration, I think, that will help you at the end. Number three, trust in God's provision. God will help you get through this. I know some of us are very opinionated, very... Uh, we, we hate when there's injustice. That, that's hard. I don't like injustice either. When I look out and I see just constant, perpetual injustice, it's hard to be quiet. Even if it's non-essential stuff, it's hard to not say something. It's hard to not get entangled in those arguments. And Jesus demonstrates to Peter here that God will provide. God will provide you the strength. God will provide you a way. God will provide you a way of an escape from that temptation to get entangled. God will help you. Very simple lesson here. We see Jesus do something miraculous. Go fishing, Peter. Something that's not offensive. You're good at it. Go fishing. I will provide two drachma. It's half a shekel, like I said. So a shekel for both Jesus and Peter is in the mouth of that fish for that non-essential temple tax. And this should be our attitude, right? Lord, I trust you. I need your help. I I need your help. I I get so infuriated as I see this world around me. I I get so frustrated as I see all these things happening, and they're they're hurting the next generation, the generation after that, and and, and it really just infuriates me, and I want to do something. You know, the truth is, our country is exactly what the people of our country has made it. Not the politicians. We can blame the politicians and the media all day long, and it is true that they do. They are part of the people, and they're part of the problem. But ultimately, the problem is the people, and it's not really the people themselves. It's the heart of the people and how our hearts changed. Facebook, screaming, yelling about non-essential stuff? No, they're changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the essentials. That's how people are changed. God will provide you a way to focus the attention on the gospel, on truth, on the essentials of Jesus Christ. God will provide you a way to be the kind of warm, kind Christian that Jesus wants you to be, a a person who's flexible and willing to sacrifice. Even if you know you're free or bound in one area or another, God will provide you a way. Well, let me just say this. I do feel like I'm trying to gild a lily in this sermon. This church, if you've been around NBC for very long, you know that even though if there's some here or there who are caught up in these kinds of things, non-essentials, and I'm sure all of us need this reminder, but I have to say this church as a whole is one of the most kind, peaceful, warm places I've ever been. Coming up on now 11 years of being a part of this church and Some of you coming up on 50 years of being a part of this church. And you know this church as a whole has learned to focus on what are essentials. We have such a a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational people of very varying socioeconomic places, and we're all sort of cast right in here in this group together. And through the decades, I believe our church has shown that kind of patience and willingness to work with one another and love one another and focus on what is essential. I get a call or an email about once a month, and it's usually from a former member, 
Sometimes it's from, from someone who's visited, and we talk about this or that, but they always come back to this thought, there's no place like NBC. Since I left, I've been to this church or that church, and they're great churches, but in terms of love and the welcome and the truth that's preached, there's no place like NBC. This is a special church. God has had His hand on us, and for that we are so grateful. So, folks, let's continue in that spirit. Let's continue to display the kind of graciousness that Christ displays here, that attitude and pursuit, the pursuit of the essentials, flexible in the non-essentials, just like Jesus was here. Let's pray we would do this. Father, we thank you so much for today. We pray that you would bless us as we seek to study and know the truth and focus our attention on those things that are essential to the gospel. And Lord, Lord, help us hold lightly to those things and be willing to sacrifice for the sake of others, even if we know we're free, even if we know there's injustice, help us to sacrifice those things for the sake of others. And Lord, we know that when it's hard to do so, we know that your Spirit will provide us exactly what we need to walk free of that snare, that temptation to be judgmental or angry. So, Lord, we trust in you. Help us live preferring one another and worshiping Christ. Again, we pray for those who do not truly believe, call them to salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.